It's Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Chrysler. With Christmas just a few days away, I thought that we could come here and gather around the Christmas tree as I tell you about a very heinous murder. Bet you didn't see it going that way, did you? So grab some milk and cookies and sit back because we're going to travel back into time. Our stop, Carnation, Washington. This is located just 25 miles east of Washington's biggest city, Seattle. Now unlike Seattle, Carnation is a small, small town. Measuring at just 1.1 square mile, Carnation is home to roughly 2,100 people. And according to the city of Carnation's website, Carnation is one of the most productive agricultural regions in the Northwest. Given its small size, Carnation is a close-knit and very friendly community where everyone literally knows everyone. I mean, the town's a mile big. Of course everyone knows everyone. The city even hosts annual celebrations, holiday parties, where everyone gets together, hangs out with their friends and neighbors. The area is safe and considered a wonderful place to raise your family. Of course, there's your burglary or theft every once in a while, like most cities. However, violent crime? That's just unheard of. That was until December 24th, 2007, the day that the worst murder case in Washington state history would hit Carnation. To say that the holiday season has never been quite the same since is an understatement. Welcome to this episode of What the Actual F. My name's Harmony, and this is the case of the Christmas Carnation Murders. December 24th, it's the night before Christmas. And while most people in the small town of Carnation, Washington, are busy hanging their stockings with care, it's a very different scene at the rural home of beloved locals Wayne and Judy Anderson. Shortly after 5 p.m., dispatchers at the Kane County Sheriff's Office receive this chilling call. A few seconds of what sounds like screaming. Hello. And then the phone goes dead. I'd like to introduce you to the Anderson family. Judy and Wayne Anderson had been happily married for 31 years. Judy worked for the United States Postal Service while Wayne was an engineer for Boeing. Together, the couple had three children, Mary, Scott, and Michelle. Scott was married to a woman by the name of Erica, and they had two children, Olivia, who was five years old, and Nathan, who was just three. Michelle had lived with her boyfriend, Joseph McEnroe, in a trailer on the 10-acre property owned by Judy and Wayne. Now that you know who the Andersons are and all the main players involved, let's dive in. The last time I had seen Judy was on the 23rd, and we had hugged because we knew that we weren't going to probably cross paths until the day after Christmas. On the 26th, I went to work, probably 7 o'clock when I went into work, and Judy wasn't there yet, which wasn't real strange. But by 7.30, she should have been there. And by about quarter to eight, there's no doubt in my mind that there is something very, very wrong. On that fateful Christmas Eve night, the family had been planning to meet up at Wayne and Judy's. The home was festive and cozy that afternoon. Full of Christmas decorations and the smell of a roast emanating from the kitchen, Judy sat while wrapping gifts as Wayne sat watching TV on the couch. The couple were waiting for Scott, Michelle, Joseph, and grandchildren to arrive. While they were relaxing and wrapping gifts, the atmosphere suddenly changed. No longer calm, joyous, and festive, now filled with chaos and terror. 
Michelle and her boyfriend Joseph walked in armed with guns. Joseph quickly distracted Judy while Michelle shot at her father. However, her gun jammed and Joseph decided to do it himself. He shot Wayne and then Judy, killing them both. The couple then cleaned up after themselves and dragged her parents' body to a shed behind the house. The couple then sat down and waited for the arrival of Michelle's brother Scott and his wife Erica, along with their two young children. Roughly an hour later, the rest of the family arrived. Nothing seemed to be wrong when they got there, so they sat down and got comfortable. That's when Michelle and Joseph appeared. Michelle immediately opened fire on her brother Scott, shooting him a total of four times. Around 5 p.m., Erica managed to connect a call into 911 dispatch. All she could get out was a scream down to the phone. You hear, not the kids. Before authorities could find out what was going on, the line went dead. This was when Michelle shot Erica twice. At this point, Michelle's gun had run out of bullets. This is when she told Joseph he needed to shoot the kids. They were screaming and clinging to their mother, who at this point was deceased. Joseph did exactly what Michelle asked and shot the two kids. With just 14 bullets, Michelle and Joseph had wiped out six members of the Anderson family. Now, as I stated, Erica's call did manage to connect to 911. Authorities were dispatched to head out to the property as well. But Michelle already had thought about the fact that the police were likely to come if anything were to go awry. And in preparation of that, she locked the gate. And simply enough, that stopped the authorities from going into the property. That's all it takes apparently, a locked gate. So due to the gate being locked, the authorities turned around and left. They had no idea of the heinous nature of what was just beyond that gate. The house was unlocked and Judy always kept her house locked. And so I opened the door a little bit and I yelled, Judy, it's Linda. And there's no response. And so I opened the door farther and lean in and yelled, Judy, it's Linda, we're worried about you. I looked down and I can see a man is laying on the ground. 911, uh, there's been a murder. There's three people dead that I can see right now. Inside? I just came up, she works with me. Inside the house? Yes. What do you see? There's a baby and a man and a woman, and she's my best friend. Postal workers begin work again on December 26th. So when Linda, Judy's best friend, noticed that Judy was not at work that morning, she felt a bit uneasy. Linda was so worried she decided to go ahead and leave work and head out to Judy's house. The gate was still locked, so Linda got out of her car and walked around it. When she got to the Andersons' door, she knocked, but nobody answered. She decided to go ahead and try the door in case somebody was hurt inside or needed help. This is when she discovered the door was unlocked. Upon pushing the door wider open, she saw the body of Scott Anderson laying motionless on the floor. At first, Linda thought that there had been a carbon monoxide leak, but as she leaned her body in farther, she realized that Scott had been shot in the head. And that's when she saw that not far from Scott were the bodies of Erica and Nathan, who also had been shot. However, Linda didn't have a cell phone at the time, so she ran in through the house into the master bedroom and dialed 911 from the family's landline. At the time of Linda's discovery, she was terrified. She even mistook Erica's body for that of her friend Judy. The phone call between Linda and the 911 dispatcher lasted for about 30 minutes. In the call, Linda told the operator that Judy and Wayne's daughter, Michelle, lived on the property in a mobile home. 
She also disclosed that Michelle had been pretty upset with Judy and Wayne lately, and this was all over money. Isn't it always over money? This is when Linda stated that she was worried that Michelle may have been involved in the murder of her family. A direct quote from Linda herself, the gate is locked, which makes me wonder if the daughter did it, which is scary, cause then I might be up here with a murderer. I was called in the early morning hours the day after Christmas. The first call I received from the um, sergeant who was presiding over the crime scene that morning was that there were four dead bodies in a home. A short time later, just about the time I was uh, en route to the crime scene, we learned that there were actually six bodies. Police finally arrive at the Anderson family home around 9.30 in the morning. This is when they first discover Scott, Erica, and Nathan's bodies. And sadly, once they move Erica's body, they find Olivia bundled underneath her mother. Apparently, she was clinging to her, holding on for dear life. All four of them had been shot in the head. Immediately, authorities begin combing the home for any evidence left behind. When an officer ventured outside to the shed, this is when they discovered two more bodies. They were the bodies of Judy and Wayne. While we're in the, the squad car, the police radio comes on. And they used a, a something like, he said something like L6 or something like that. And the detective immediately moved to turn off the radio. And I said, they found more bodies, didn't they? And he says, yes. He says, this is the worst murder case I have ever been on. Now, about three hours after the police arrived at the Anderson family home, guess who pulls up? Michelle and Joseph McEnroe. Now, most people, when they pull up to their parents' home, would probably be alarmed by an excessive amount of police. However, the pair didn't even seem to be phased by all the cops on the property, nor did they even bother asking if Wayne and Judy were okay. This raised a lot of the officers' suspicions immediately. Most people, when seeing all of this, are going to be a bit alarmed and wondering if everyone is okay, but not Michelle and Joseph. When a detective asked Michelle why she thought the authorities were at her house, she broke down. This is what Michelle had to say. It's not Joe's fault, it's my fault. As soon as I shot the gun, I felt so bad. Like, what the hell have I done? I'm a monster. The detective asked Michelle why the children had to be killed. She said that the kids would have been scarred for life after witnessing both of their parents being killed. Have I mentioned that I hate people? Cause I do. Michelle was questioned as to why she felt the need to wipe out her family. She told detectives that she was tired of everybody stepping on her. She claimed that her brother Scott owed her over $40,000 and would not pay her back at all. She said that her parents had even begun pressing her about paying rent money for living on their property in the mobile home. Cause you know, being an adult and paying bills is just outlandish. Nonetheless, she went on to complain because her and Joseph had been living on the property rent-free for over a year. It became very clear to detectives very fast that money was the heart of this heinous crime. When questioned about how long she had been planning the family murders, Michelle replied that she decided about two weeks beforehand that she would kill her family. And this is when she asked Joseph to help her. After the couple confessed, which went on for nearly two hours of them detailing who killed who and exactly what happened, they were arrested on the spot. Michelle even took detectives to where they had discarded the guns in the Stillagamish River. 
and on December 28th, Michelle and Joseph were each charged with six counts of aggravated murder. And in June of 2008, during a jailhouse interview with the Seattle Times, Michelle confessed to the murders once again. Quote, I want the most severe punishment, which would be the death penalty. I think if I killed a bunch of people, I'm not sure I deserve to live. I want to waive my trial. And even in spite of all of their confessions and everything they said, it would be a very long road for justice. Linda, tell me about Joe. He and Michelle met online and they both had the same interests in, I guess it would be called the occult, I don't know, uh, but in, in the darker side of lives. According to friends, the Andersons happily welcomed Joe into their family. But soon, the couple began isolating themselves, Michelle in particular. Erica wasn't a big fan of Michelle. Michelle was, you know, any little thing that happened was a slight against her. You know, you look at her crosswise and, or, you know, oh, you're talking about me. Judy and I discussed Michelle more than anybody because Judy worried with the lifestyle that she was living. In October of 2008, King County prosecutor Dan Sattersberg said he would seek the death penalty for Joseph and Michelle. However, this received significant pushback from Judge Jeffrey Ramsdell, who ruled against it. Then, Governor of Washington Jay Inslee said that while he was in office, nobody would be executed. Then, on September 5, 2013, the Washington State Supreme Court overturned Judge Ramsdell's ruling against the death penalty. They ordered that the trials of Michelle and Joseph go ahead, but were to follow separately. So let's go ahead and talk about those trials, because shit gets a little weird. Seven and a half long years after the murders, Joseph finally stands trial. It takes a day and a half of deliberation for a jury to find him guilty on all counts. But at sentencing, Joseph's defense paints him as a mentally ill man who was manipulated by the real mastermind, his girlfriend, Michelle. She had a lot of anger and a lot of hatred, and she thought that the best way to act on that would be to go off and kill people. I was really her attack dog when this stuff happened. I did because I thought I had to. And yeah, I know that's not a very good excuse, but it I'm not trying to excuse myself, I'm just trying to explain my actions. And explain his actions he did, in chilling detail. So I went and, um, moved Judy Faust. I put a bag over her head because I couldn't look at her, because of, see, the emptiness, well, uh, she should be. <laughs> it's a powerful moment but family members and prosecution maintain it's all in act. Whatever. Could care less what he has to say. I am not impressed with him at all. This brings us to January 20th, 2015. Joseph McEnroe was escorted into the King County Superior Court in Seattle for his trial. King County Prosecutor Scott O'Toole was pushing for Joseph to be sentenced to death. However, Joseph's defense attorney argued that Joseph was mentally ill and had been coerced by the true mastermind behind the killing of the family, Michelle Anderson. Joseph McEnroe, M-C-E-N-R-O-E. Saying he was terrified to take the stand, Joseph McEnroe appeared a mess. <sighs> Sorry. 
Heavily medicated for anxiety and depression, and speaking with the thick impediment that he's had since childhood, McEnroe was scattered and struggled to make sense at times. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> terrible. Um... McEnroe immediately admitted to the Christmas Eve killing seven years ago, his attorney asking why he would do something so diabolical. I'm sorry, I did because I thought I had to. And yeah, I know that's not a very good excuse, but I'm not trying to excuse myself. I'm just trying to explain my actions. The defense maintains McEnroe believed he had to kill Michelle Anderson's family because he suffers from a mental disorder that allowed her to completely control him. Anderson confessed to masterminding the killings because of a perceived family feud. Today, McEnroe spent hours dissecting his troubled childhood but offered no excuses for what he did. I've also taken from them, them from these people who had done nothing but shown me kindness and goodness and... If I thought that holding myself or killing myself or doing anything, that anything I could do would go off and bring back these people or ameliorate the pain or something, I would. McEnroe also talked about being visited by spirit animals and spoke about a troubled childhood filled with abuse at the hands of his mother's many boyfriends as well as many failed suicide attempts. And today he said that he killed those two children specifically because he wanted to save them from a life of hell after having just witnessed their own parents' murders. He said he believed that one day they would be reincarnated. Jurors will soon be asked to determine whether he should be put in prison for the rest of his life without parole or be put to death by lethal injection. During Joseph's trial, most of the time he showed very little emotion. However, this all changed when he took the stand on April 3rd, 2015. Joseph was barely able to string together any coherent sentences. This was due to him being so heavily medicated on anti-anxiety and antidepressants. At one point, he even began laughing hysterically, and then as he recalled what happened with Judy as he shot her, he threw his arms over his head and began rocking back and forth uncontrollably. Joseph even went on to state that he was manipulated into killing the family. He states that Michelle had made him feel as though he had no other options except for to participate in the murders. However, prosecutors weren't buying it. While he was being questioned by prosecutor Scott O'Toole, Joseph lashed out, you know what, fuck it. You wanna kill me, go ahead, kill me, I don't care. Scott O'Toole did not let up, however. And in reference to planning the murder, he said, you were excited about it, were you not? To which Joseph replied, absolutely not. However, this only made Scott press harder. He asked him if it was his idea to quote, bait the trap. The one that was set for Scott, Erica, and their two children. How Joseph and Michelle had cleaned the house just after killing Judy and Wayne. All to make it look still welcoming and safe for the family. They did this by cleaning up the crime scene and hiding the bodies of Judy and Wayne in the shed behind the house. Joseph stated that he was not trying to excuse his actions, but rather explain why what happened had happened. Now in Washington state, for the jury to have a recommended death penalty, all 12 jurors must be in favor. And in the case of Joseph, however, eight juries ruled in favor of the death sentence. However, four did not. This meant that the death penalty was no longer an option. On May 13, 2015, Joseph was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Scott's wife, Erica's mother, Pam, had this to say. 
Joseph has no respect for anybody. He had no respect for the two people who were kindest to him, which were Wayne and Judy. They took him in and he shot them and threw them in the backyard. I have nothing to say about him. If you want to see Joseph's trial footage, I encourage you to go check it out on YouTube. I will say, I don't know if it's an act, I don't know if he really is mentally ill, I'm sure he's got some trauma and has had some issues. But that does not excuse him taking the life of six people. So I agree with Pam here. I don't think that Joseph has any respect for anyone, not even himself. Then, in one of the most emotional moments of the trial, McEnroe describes three-year-old Nathan's final moments alive. He had actually showed held up the phone battery and showed it to me like he understood and accepted what was going on. He handed the batteries to that monster and, and he shot him. That's not a man, he's just a monster. As a result of the outcome of Joseph's trial, King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg announced that Michelle Anderson would not face the death penalty. He said, to proceed with the death penalty against defendant Anderson in light of the sentence imposed on defendant McEnroe would not be in the best interest of justice. So on January 25th, 2016, Michelle's trial began. In his opening statement, Scott O'Toole stated that the motive for the murders is pure, unadulterated greed. Referring to an interview that Michelle had with a detective in which she brought up money more than 35 times in her explanation as to why she killed her family. Michelle's confession about the murders was taped and this was played for the jury. In this tape, she called herself a monster and a bad person for murdering her family. She said that her mother and father had abused her for several years. She went to say this, and I quote, I wasted my life because of these assholes. It's not fair, said like a true murderer. It was also revealed during the trial that Michelle hated her brother's wife, Erica. This was because she felt that Erica had pushed her out of her brother's life. Towards the end of Michelle's trial, she had an outburst in which she yelled at Judge Ramsdale, telling him that she was going to file charges against her court-appointed attorneys, who she was convicted had been lying to her. She had wanted to temporarily leave jail and find her own private counsel, but she was not granted permission to do so. And for this, she blamed the judge, who she believed was, quote, violating her rights. You know, like she did when she murdered her family. Violating rights and then complaining about it? <laughs> okay. Michelle's attorneys did not call a single witness to aid in her trial. They even cited how difficult she had been, refusing to cooperate or communicate with them at all. On March 4, 2016, Michelle, like Joseph, was convicted on six counts of aggravated murder in first degree. And on April 21st, she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. During Michelle's sentencing, Pam Mantle addressed Michelle, quote, I don't think you're big and tough, Michelle. I think you're a bully and a coward. I am brokenhearted. Every day, I miss those six people. And Michelle's older sister, Mary, took the stand as well. She had this to say to Michelle. It kills me. I loved you so much. Just know, they loved you. And you robbed us of that. It didn't need to happen. None of these lives should have been cut short. There is never, ever an excuse for murder. I'm glad that the death penalty was taken off the table because I really feel that life in prison is going to be a lot harsher of a punishment. 
and you do deserve to be punished. You took something away from us that was very special. And we miss her. The whole community misses her. And this brings us to the end of our Christmas episode. That was the grisly case of the Carnation murders. What should have been a happy, celebratory time with family turned into a very dark mark in Carnation, Washington. Now known for one of the most brutal murders in Washington history, Christmas time isn't exactly festive in Carnation anymore. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of What the Actual F. Also want to let you guys know that in 2022, I will be doing my very first case with family involvement. So I hope you guys are looking forward to that. 2022 is going to be a big year for the podcast and even some more content involving what the actual F. I hope you guys have a very Merry Christmas if you celebrate and happy holidays to everyone else. I will talk to you on the next episode of what the actual F. Stay safe out there guys. I love you and bye bye now. <laughs>